Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from stand-up comic and Emmy-nominated writer Sam Jay about her new US late-night HBO series Pause with Sam Jay and how she's navigated her career to date. And from Everything's Gonna Be Okay creator Josh Thomas and co-star Kayla Cromer about how the hit freeform show is advancing the portrayal of autism and the LGBTQ plus community on TV. C21's Content LA On Demand virtual conference wrapped last week with a series of panel discussions and one-on-one interviews exploring how the US television business is evolving in a period of unprecedented change. From the shift to streaming, the challenges of keeping production going during the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement and a move towards more international-focused development, these discussions tackle the gamut of issues and opportunities confronting Hollywood right now and the status of US programming on the global stage. Stand-up comic and Emmy-nominated writer Sam Jay spoke to the executive chair author Kelly Edwards about her new US late-night HBO series Pause with Sam Jay and how she's navigated her career to date from ABC's Jimmy Kimmel Live through to her own Netflix special and the importance of staying true to your own vision. I'm really, really pleased to be here with you, Sam. You are a writer, you're a producer, um, you're a stand-up. I saw your amazing uh, Netflix special that you did last year, which was just fantastic. And now you have a new show called Pause with Sam J. It's going to be airing on HBO. So I would describe this as timely and topical and just what we need to be having new conversations right now. I know that you have an album out, you have written for the Emmys, you You've been on SNL, you've written for SNL, you've been on Broad City, you've had a lot of experiences. So first of all, I want to say congratulations. Thank you. And I would love to start off just talking about, about this show. I wanted to hear how you would describe the show because it's not like anything I've ever seen before. Um, so why don't you kick us off with, uh, with a little bit about the show? Um, the show is a weird walk in my brain. No, the show, I don't know. It's hard to describe. I think I just wanted to create a a energy and a vibe of like a place where you could come and be honest, a place where you could come and learn, a place where you could come and grow and a place where you could be candid. And that's what I feel like it is when I have friends over for a party. You know, I feel like when people come over for a party, their guard is down. They feel like they're safe. They're among friends. They can kind of say some of their ideas that may be a little more dangerous or a little more criticized or just not in line with what is being pumped through, you know, social media and what the popular opinions of the day are. And it gets to think and be critical and kind of push back at some of that stuff. And I I think that's where growth happens and where funny happens and where who we are as people, where humanity happens. And I just didn't see a lot of spaces encouraging that and allowing that. And it's a lot about, you know, who I am, too, in this weird way. It's very selfish. It's just like I think that's the type of person I am and that's how I learn best and thrive best and grow best. And so I wanted a space um, to do that. And I didn't want to lock myself into something that didn't feel like me. And a desk show just didn't feel like who I was. So tell us about the um, the format, because it's a very different when you talk about late night and you mentioned the desk show, those kinds of shows feel like the norm. So it's like, you know, you've got all the Jimmys doing their shows and, you know, uh, Seth and all those. They feel very much like a formula. And yet you've broken the mold on that. So you want to talk about how the 
maybe how the development process came together. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, Princess is the EP and I, I, I am so thankful for how encouraging and open to ideas he's been this entire process. And a lot of it was us talking, you know, talking, 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 talking about what it could be, talking about what it should feel like having four Zoom sessions a week because we couldn't meet in person and just rambling. Sometimes he would just ask me like, hey, girl, what you been thinking about this week? And I'd be like, oh, you know, I think it's so stupid that this is going on in the news or I think it's so dumb that this opinion is happening or I think it is really poignant that someone said this and like we just kept engaging with each other and really trying to figure out a rhythm for me which is what I appreciate you know he's always kind of been like you're gonna be the face of this thing and so it has to fit you and it has to feel comfortable and good to you and it was a lot of iterations and it was a lot of different versions and um then the writer's room came about and that sparked a whole nother level of creativity and energy and from that you know the ideas and the different iterations kept changing and growing and then one night I was with one of the writers uh Ryan Donahue who's also a very good friend of mine we've known each other since Boston Comedy where I started and uh we were at my house we were having some drinks we were talking about the show we were talking about some stuff we were pitching on earlier and just chilling and I the we still had this kind of version of it that still felt contrived to me but it felt closer to who I was you know it was like there was this version at one point where we were gonna ride around in a car and it was gonna be like me talking to my homie and then he would be kind of bringing me to these places and um that still felt weird to me like oh now I'm just forcing my homie to like listen to me rant this doesn't quite feel like it but it was closer to it than anything I had at the time and then we just kept drinking and talking which is a very typical thing for me and then I was like hey man it should feel like this you know it should feel like a party at my crib it should just be you know this type of vibe this type of energy because this is kind of when I'm on you know I, I like to have gatherings I like to entertain my girl likes to have gatherings there's always people here when we picked our apartment we thought about it in terms of oh we have people over is this enough space to have people over and so I was like yeah this is I, I like to host you know and um and I like to hold court I do I'm a I'm an old black man in that way I like to <laughs> I like to hold court and have my little moment and so I was like yeah man and that would be a vibe and then he was like yo like no for real and I was like oh for real and then I called Princess and I was pretty intoxicated I'm not gonna say I was drunk <laughs> I was intoxicated and um I was like hey it should just like be a party and I said everything and I was like do you get it and he was like no and I was like fair I will call you tomorrow and I called him the next day more clear-minded and kind of laid out what I saw and he was like yo that could be really cool and I was like I think so and so then we just started living in that space and it clicked and so we, we stuck with it that's amazing so it really was the development process at work so you were it sounded like you were throwing a lot of ideas at the wall trying to feel what felt authentic to you and then you hit upon something that sort of came to you in a drunken stupor what's well, not called a stupor <laughs> but yeah Okay, awesome. I love that. So why is HBO the right place for this show? Um, no one's ever asked me this, but I, I've, I've always wanted to be on HBO as a comic. I truly, and this is absolutely no shade to Netflix, I am very grateful and I do really think for my first special, I landed in the best place to be. But as a kid growing up, my heart was with HBO. You know, I wanted to see the 
Bong in front of my special. All the greats had HBO specials, in my opinion. That's what solidifies you as a great comic. It's always been the dangerous, like, place to, like, play. It's always seemed like that's where the cool kids go to do cool, like, daring, interesting things. HBO's always been that, you know? I was born in 82. I'm a kid who grew up on, like, real sex and, like, hookers at the point, but also, like, deaf comedy jam, you know what I mean? And, like, all these variations of shows and things. And HBO always seems to kind of push boundaries and take risks. And um, I'm not a person that likes to color in the lines per se. And so for me, it was like, yeah, this is this is a place that's going to let me make something I really want to make. And they really have been that place. They have been very gracious because, I mean, you've only seen the first episode, but my ideas are very wild. And so I expect to hear no way more than I do. And sometimes they're like, go ahead. And I'm like, why didn't you say no? Because I already wasn't thinking you were going to let me do this. And now I got to like figure out how to do it. <laughs> so yeah, I, let's talk a little bit about that because I love the pilot. I thought the the topic that you picked, very, very topical. And also really having a conversation about, I think, identity in a very, which I think your standup does really well. So can you talk a little bit about why, or I should say more like what kinds of things that you want to talk about? What kinds of conversations do you like if you can without, you know, sort of blowing the I mean, I just want to do stuff that feels like right to me right now and where I am a little bit but I feel like it also needs to tap into what's going on but in a real way I feel like there's this version you can do where you just like run through the news clips and you're like what's in the news what are people talking about what's my take on whatever's in the news and then there's this other thing that I wanted to tap which is like not what's in the news but like what's going on in people like what is stirring inside of us what as a society are we reacting to what are we pushing against? What are we taking in? What are we pushing against with one another? And I just wanted to talk more in those spaces. And to me, entering with this conversation about coons, because I'm a Black woman and this is something I've heard about my entire life, allows for this whole conversation about monolith identity and how we address all these things. And what that actually does when you do put these kind of caps and standards on people, how it may limit them in some ways. And so I just felt like that was uh, more at the heart of the thing than on the surface of the thing. And I feel like enough people are attacking that surface and not to say shallow, just what's immediate. I feel like there's enough people having that conversation that I just didn't know what I could add to it. I just didn't see a place where I could bring anything that hasn't been brought. And for me, it's like you have a whole show and a whole half an hour block bring something that's not being brought and so I was just trying to find a way to do that that felt honest let's dig in a little bit for the folks who are part of the the audience here who are really really interested in craft and I'd love to hear a little bit about so when you had this great idea you and Prentice sort of Prentice Penny who was the EP of Insecure came up with what the show was going to be how did then you pitch it to HBO 
And then let's talk a little bit about, and then how did you mount it? So what's your writer's room look like? How did you pick the folks to go in it? Well, again, the idea kind of developed in the room. So we already had the room and we were kind of going in one direction, um, which was the direction of the car stuff. And um, that's where we were writing from in the room and it just it wasn't feeling correct. And so then this other iteration came after that. There was no formal sit down and pitch the show. And I that is a blessing, <laughs> uh, I would say, because of the position that Princess had already had at HBO and his reputation and him being gracious enough to extend that reputation to me. And so they were in this place where we were really in a developmental kind of deal situation where they were like, we're going to let you figure this thing out. And so I never really had to sit in a room and go, hey, I did at some point have to tell them this is what we're thinking and this is what we want to do. But I just don't want to lie. And it didn't feel like the pressure of a pitch because I've been in pitches where I'm like, if they don't fucking die for this right now, then I'm not going to get this. And then we just got to walk away and find a new place. And um, it didn't feel like that. And I don't want to present it that it did. It wasn't that dire. It was more like, hey, we want to hear your idea out and see if it's something we think we can make. And if it's not, then we'll give you some time to come up with other ideas. So I felt a little safer. That's why I want to paint that picture because pitching, like pitching is so, you feel so like volatile and like, and I didn't have that. I felt a little safer, like, oh, this is going to be a place that's going to allow me to find this. And they were so great about letting me know that they were going to let me find this. They were very good about saying like, hey, we know you've never done this. So we're going to let you find this. And that's, I think, another testament to what HBO uh, can be as a network and why they make a lot of great shit because they're artists first and they get what artists are and they get that we need time and space to think and figure things out. But when we did land on the car stuff, it was still like a feeling of like, oh, now I got to sell them on something that is nothing like what's going on. You know, like I had a lot of stuff I did. I was like, I don't want to do a straight to camera monologue. I don't want to sit at a desk. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And I didn't know how they were going to feel about that. I didn't even know how Princess was going to feel about that, really. And so I started talking to him about it because I know what a late night show is in people's minds and what they expected to be. Um, but they were very like, all right, <laughs> what do you want it to be then? So in that way... For me, the pressure came on the back end of executing the thing that I got everybody on board with. Right. And then, you know, the, the interesting thing is that you, you we call it a late night showing it. It's not necessarily late night because people are going to watch it whenever they watch it. They're going to catch it whenever they catch it. But you're right. HBO is sort of, you know, artist first, auteur first, and I think incredibly supportive to the talent. I'm glad that after all of the development, it's come into such an amazing space. So how many episodes are you going to do? Six. Okay. Excellent. And hopefully many more after that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Feels like enough for like a season. Like people are like, oh, you don't want 10 or 12. I'm like, Mm-mm, this was a lot. Right. <laughs> well, just lot. wait. There, there will be many more, I'm sure. So for anybody who is out there who is looking for advice about, I mean, your path is so, I'm going to say unusual because you've had, I mean, you went from stand up to special to late night show within a really quick amount of time. Is there any sort of, I'm going to say learnings that you would have, could pass along to anybody who's sort of entering into this business, maybe through that same 
same sort of trajectory? Hmm. I mean, I think mostly what I've what I've learned is that you got to find the things that are right for you and that everything isn't going to be right for you. And that's OK, um, because there's a lot of things out here and you can't get super caught up on any one opportunity, because if you think an opportunity is going to make you or break you it is. Right. And if you're just going to do this, it's a series of opportunities and a series of moments. But you can take away something from all of them. And as long as you're learning and you're growing as lame and cheesy as it sounds, then you're doing it correct. And you can't really expect more out of it than personal growth. And then the other stuff is like bonuses. But if you go into it and you're like, I have to get a late night show and I have to do this. And I have that just never has worked for me in life. That attitude, it just doesn't fit me. And maybe it works for some people, but it, it doesn't work for me. And I think with something so arbitrary that you can't really control, you can't control if people are going to like your idea. You can't control if the thing you write, people are going to connect with. You can't control that. You can only control your output and your authenticity and how you react. And so I just try to keep myself mentally in that space and consistently consistently remind myself of that um, and just know that this is like a long, tumultuous ride that I chose. And so it'll go up and down and all around. But as long as I'm me through it and I'm honest through it and I'm connected to the things that I want to connect to through it, then it's all valuable. And that's all I can really ask for. Right. I think those are amazing learnings. I think uh, I tell people all the time, you have to stay true to yourself because if you try to chase what everybody says that they want, it's going to be different tomorrow. And the only thing you can bring is who you are because someone's going to want that eventually. And that's the most unique thing you have. No one can be you. People can chase what's being made and then people can make many versions of what's out there. And then now you're in the pool and you're competing with all the different versions. But if you make your version, no one can be you. No one's had your life experiences. No one's had your connection to the world. No one's going to see it how you see it. And so if you hone in on that, then you're kind of always in this space where you're separate from the melee in a way. Well, I want to thank you for the time that you spent. And I think your show is just fantastic. And I hope everybody checks it out. It's going to be amazing. And I want to thank everybody who's joined us today for this conversation, wherever you are in the world. Sam Jay speaking with Kelly Edwards as part of C21's Content LA On Demand. Everything's Gonna Be Okay is a comedy about a neurotic 20-something-year-old raising his teenage half-sisters, one of whom's on the autism spectrum after their dad's untimely death. The series, which recently had its second season debut in the US on Freeform and Hulu, has received critical praise for its groundbreaking portrayal of neurodiverse characters and the LGBTQ community. Creator and showrunner Josh Thomas and co-star Kayla Cromer spoke with Nico Franks about the series and the importance of authentic casting and writing in TV comedy as part of C21's Content LA On Demand. Hi, Josh. Hi, Kayla. Thanks for joining us for Content LA On Demand. We're going to chat about how everything's going to be okay, how it started, the impact it's had, and just about comedy in general, which is one of my favourite subjects. So... Um, I think a good place to be to start would be 
talking about how obviously everything's going to be okay precedes the pandemic, but just the title alone feels like something that people are going to gravitate towards to in these very uncertain times. So tell me a bit about how the show originated and obviously, yeah, about season two, which you filmed during the pandemic. I wanted to make a show. I wanted to make a show with an autistic character at the center. And I wanted to make a show with a teenage girl at the center, just because I feel like, um, well, I feel like really drawn to teenage girls and autistic people. And, uh, um, at the time, I didn't know I was autistic. Now it makes like a lot more sense. Why? And then, uh, so I put this show together because they were the characters they wanted to do. And then Freeform gave us money and then we made it. Easy as that. That sounds good. Yeah. Because obviously, yeah, you had an amazing track record with Please Like Me, which obviously so that was an ABC and Australia show, but made big waves in the US. So was that kind of the, that provided a lot of momentum, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a lot easier to like sell a show when you've already had a show. That I think would be like my best piece of advice <laughs> when it comes to selling a TV show. Already have had a TV show that like did fine. And um, we'll talk about how you would, how and why you were drawn to, you know, writing about autism and autistic characters in a moment. But Kayla, it'd be great to bring you in here and talk about, so your involvement and um yeah how did you come to be involved in the show well same as any actor with any show you get submitted to audition and then you audition and then you audition again and again and again for these types of roles and I eventually got the part the only difference is I self-submitted because at the time I didn't have a theatrical agent and Josh was were you aware of that that Kyla was submitting without an agent. You made aware of those kinds of things in that process. Yeah, I mean, we were looking for an actor that was actually on the spectrum. There's like no actors that are represented that are actually on the spectrum. Like trying to cast someone who's actually on the spectrum is not, it's not a traditional casting process, right? Like we had to like go out and actively look for people. And we had to reach out to like different community groups and stuff. It wasn't. If you're trying to cast like a hot 20 year old boy to like play a superhero, I think that's probably like pretty easy for the casting agent to get auditions in for that, right? They just like click a few buttons on a computer and they get like the submitted all the boys. Um, but if you're looking for something like more specific, especially in a group that's like underrepresented, like there's never been an out autistic lead on a TV show ever. And that's like, like a less traditional process. So I'd say that we saw almost nobody that was like sent into representation. So that feels like an issue right there that, you know, there's a lack of people on the spectrum who aren't represented. Yeah, and the agents, agents book roles, but they, they book actors that they think are going to book roles. So if producers aren't like making TV shows that the agents think they're going to make money off their actors, then the act, then there's not going to be representation. But that's changing now. And I think there's like a lot, a lot of good representation specifically for actors that are like, disabled yeah like some agencies now have their own division especially for that but we want to get to the point where that department doesn't exist and everyone can be in the same theatrical departments so it's like we're all human we're all the same this is the first u.s show to feature an autistic lead played by an autistic actor that's the character matilda that you play kyla mm -hmm. um and um, it should be taken as a given that that would be the case that you would cast an autistic actor playing an autistic character. But we know, you know, historically in, in Hollywood that that's not the case. And we only saw recently with Sia and the film Music that that's not the case. But from what you, you were saying just previously, is progress being made? And do you feel like that was a watershed moment almost and, and it won't happen again? I think 
I mean, we're on our way for complete inclusion with disability in Hollywood, but with Sia, it's just people went out on it because apparently there was stuff going around that she only saw one person with autism for the role, but it was too stressful for that one person. But, and she didn't look out to other people. Like I'm not saying that for a fact, that's just what I've read online. I don't want any problems with that, but it's always going to happen because look how many decades of TV and film has this happened. Raid man, what's eating, what's eating Gilbert great rumors that Sheldon Cooper of the big bang theory might, might be on the spectrum and the good doctor atypical. It's, just it it's always happened so i think it's going to keep happening for a while until hollywood realizes that complete inclusion needs to happen yeah i mean definitely for us it wasn't something that we like knew was possible when we were trying to do it because it had never been done before but you can like show business like can do all sorts of different fancy things <laughs> they pull out all sorts of stuff and for me it was just like like if we're casting like someone to come in and play a barista we usually try and find an actor that has like barista experience because they're gonna do like much more convincing latte art you know like it's gonna be like a lot quicker and the same thing goes for like when you're casting gay people or when you're casting autistic people the closer you can get your actor to like the reality of their character the like better show you're gonna have it just seems like really obvious to me I wasn't doing it because of like some great and gesture to be like a good guy I was doing it because I just think it makes for like a better more convincing more authentic show I agree but I also agree with like there's a variety wide variety of disability disabilities today and I kind of like it when you're kind of taken by surprise when you randomly fi- find out, like sometimes it's been kept in secret, like when medical examiner in the original CSI, he's an amputee and nobody on set, none of the casting knew it until one of the later seasons when he got frustrated in a scene and grabbed his uh, artificial leg, took it off and throw it in the scene. And they kept that. And the world just like was really became exposed to real disability in film after that moment. And it was incredible. So I still do believe that actors with disabilities should play characters that aren't disabled. Like the disability doesn't focus on them or it's not, or it's not known. So we have the chances to play those types of characters. Cause like right now there is progress being made because 99% of my auditions are for neurotypical characters. And that's huge as a person who's out being on the spectrum. Josh, I've heard you speak before about not wanting to necessarily create episodes with arcs that are, are kind of positive in the sense of, you know, this is going to teach people this and it's, and they need to see this kind of story and then they'll, they'll think this, it's, you, you focus as much more on human stories and people who make mistakes and are flawed. So tell me a bit about the process of, of doing that. And particularly in, in US television, you're creating content for a platform that's got a huge audience. So tell me about your process and your approach when you're doing that. And how do you ensure that, yeah, you're able to do that when potentially the notes or things might be coming back a bit different? Yeah, I mean, um, people usually want like um, characters to like learn lessons and like um, have more traditional like character development. 
finally doing that. Everyone's on board with that now. Like anybody, any network executive that works with me now, they like, they get it and they like that. And they like that, you know, like couples, my like couple relationships don't usually just start like getting bad and then they break out. They like get good and bad and good and bad and good and bad and good and bad. And you don't know what's going to happen. And that's like how things are in my real life and everybody else's life, I think. And we try and do that with everybody. And then the other thing with the autism representation is we try and be, I try not to teach, treat them different to our neurotypical characters, right? So I'm not scared of making them annoying or I'm not scared of making them like shitty sometimes the same way I would with my other characters. And we try and focus less on disability or more on like the specific person and what like makes that specific person tick. So yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I get like really frustrated in TV all the time, people learning lessons and growing and changing because I just don't know that many people in my life who have like gotten better. I don't know if that's that common. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you, do you, Kayla? You know well, I've, I've, got, I've gotten better. I've gotten better. I mean, from where I was when I was a kid and now, I mean, that's what, what I would eventually like to see for Matilda, like really advocating for herself, like going to college. If she's still, if there is a season three, going to college and fighting for her right for accommodations. Cause that's something I had to do um, in high school was get the right to have my accommodations like a laptop in class so I can type because I'm a much faster typer. I was the fastest typer in school and then trying to hand write out every, everything. I would like to see the, like Elle Woods in Legally Blonde really advocating for herself and winning people over because that's essentially how I had to live life in school. Yeah. I mean, obviously I mean, when I say I, like, I don't think people get better, I mean, of course people like improve and a little bit but like on tv you get these kind of grand moments where people learn these like lessons and have these like big like moments of ethical growth i mean people grow up but like uh sometimes i think the simpsons you know like every week the simpsons they're just the same and they make the same mistakes and they never change and sometimes i think that's like more realistic than like um some like scripted narrative seasons where like or like movies where people learn that like big lesson about how to be a better parent like, Wait, I feel like I, okay i can see that because i just yeah. started getting into the simpsons and i'm just like Dude, I was just thinking about that the other day. Does this family like learn? Like you don't, you don't do this. To, you don't do this to your child. Like just like Homer does with Bart all the all the time, and or an eight year old wearing a strapless dress and pearls is still new to me. There's just things you just. I don't, <laughs> Yeah, they never change. And to me, that has like a certain realism to it that I that I like. Well, it's also a cartoon. They never really change. Well, except for the Rugrats when they did the spinoff all grown up and they were teenagers. That's the only instance I can think of. I'm very jealous that you're discovering, yeah, getting into The Simpsons. So yeah, seasons three to <laughs> three to nine are just some of the best TV ever made, I think. Um, <laughs> and so did that impact how when you were pitching, everything's going to be okay? Because I know with Please Like Me, you were very careful not to pitch it as a sitcom. It was more of a drama. Was that did, was that a similar approach with everything's going to be okay? Yeah, I mean, I was pitching Please Like Me like 12 years ago or something. And um, genre and TV was a much bigger deal then, right? Like, is it going to be a comedy? Is it going to be a drama? The mix of comedy and drama was like new. It was like pre-girls. Girls came out while we were in post-production. A lot of people were like, oh, I think this is kind of like what you want, were trying and wanting to do because life doesn't have a genre, right? Like everything that's funny is usually sad and everything that's sad is usually funny. Like someone falling over is like funny and it's also really sad. Um, and like funerals, when you go to funerals, there's usually like really good moments of joy and really funny moments in those funerals. And there's also moments of despair. And um, I wanted to make sure that we were trying to be realistic and showing both of those things. The idea of a drama deed when we started pitching Please Like Me was like pretty new. But now if you didn't want to do a drama, like I went in there and I said, I want to do like a, 
a straight sitcom. <laughs> There's not going to be any like emotional downs in the episode. They would tell me to get out. It's like very it's expected. Yeah, it's an interesting shift there's been. Tell me about the approach you took to incorporating the pandemic into season two, because I know a lot of creators and writers have been keen to actually kind of almost ignore the pandemic from a kind of creative perspective in terms of the scripts and acknowledging that it's happening. But season two, you know, it's it's clear that it's being filmed not in the sense of the way it's filmed, but in terms of what the character, you know, the characters are wearing masks at times. They're they're referencing how it's impacting their future jobs and things like that. Did you have a moment where you were thinking maybe we should just ignore it and kind of carry on as usual? Or was the idea to always, you know, this is happening to me, so it's happening to Nick Nicholas and it's happening to Matilda. Yeah, no, it was a really hard decision for like lots of reasons. One of the reasons was they already had a season two plot that didn't involve a pandemic. So it's like a lot more work to me for me. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then we uh, didn't really know, you know, do you remember at the beginning? They like thought it was going to be like two weeks. It was like two weeks lockdown to save America. We didn't really know it was going to still be going on when the show went to air. We were having these conversations like, are people going to want to revisit the pandemic when it goes to air? Which of course now seems like crazy. Um, but at the time, nobody knew how long it was going to go on for. But I am, um, one of my favorite things in the world is like characters stuck in a room. Like if I can lock my characters in a room, like the like the trope episode, like sitcom episode where they get locked in an elevator, like that's like my favorite kind of thing, right? Like it just really forces them to like burrow down and like talk about things. So uh, like the first Saw movie. Is that what happens in the first Saw movie? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they they it's it's funny because they actually they could only afford one room, so they constantly changed the set. But in the beginning of the film, two characters are chained to like a tiled room. And yeah, they're, they're stuck in there. I'm not going to get into the gruesome details because obviously you can tell by the title, but yes, they're stuck in a room. But that's all the crew had to work with this one room and constantly change it for all the scenes. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what it was like to shoot. Everything's going to be okay season two. <laughs> Agreed. So I was, I was happy to keep everyone at home and... I feel like, I don't know, also just felt like a weird lie to pretend like the pandemic's not happening. Just felt like a weird lie to, like, it's happening. Like, we're in it. Pretending that it's not happening to me seems really, like, just a bit odd. No, I agree. I was scared at first because, like, Josh's concern was, you know, people are living the pandemic. Is that something they're honestly going to want to watch? That was my biggest concern. But everyone's still watching it and, and loving it, seeing a different perspective on how people react to a pandemic and how fun and awkward it can be at the same time. But it was interesting filming during a pandemic. It's just like constant quarantine, which was in interesting because I live right around the corner from where we filmed. So two minute drive there here so it's like constant like back and forth of quarantine and lots of testing i imagine oh the, uh, there is a lot of testing it like i i got to know some of the people that were giving the test because i would know if it was going to be brutal or gentle because the gentle guys i would just call them the egyptian mortician because he used to take the brains out of the nose and that's kind of like what i was feeling when that person in particular would just be doing that every other day and then every day it was just like <gasps> And then constant sneezing when you're trying to act right after that. Yeah, we become but, like connoisseurs of how to do a good COVID test. You become like, you know, when you like do something so much that you become a connoisseur of it and you're like, no, that's not good. That guy's not good. And that girl is good. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. I liked the COVID test in the morning. It was like a little like, whoo, even girl. It was like a little wake up, you know? <laughs> like, okay, off we go. A little jolt. Yeah, 4.30 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And uh, tell me a bit about some of the, the casting uh, for season two, because 
with Richard Klein and Maria Bamford, you've got two of the most amazing comedy actors working in the industry today. Like, so were those, yeah, were those roles written with them in mind? Uh, we like wanted to have Drea's parents and I was like pretty aware that like Drea is pretty kooky. So we could probably get really kooky people to be our parents, which I was really excited about because I like love kooky people. And then I don't think, I don't think it was written with them in mind, but then maybe like halfway through the season, writing the season, we cast them and then we started writing like towards them, which is usually how we, I do it. Usually I'll start writing a character and then after we cast, we write the character to look like towards their voice. To what extent are you writing episodes kind of knowing how people are going to watch the show in terms of whether or not they're going to watch it, you know, all in one on Hulu or whether they're going to watch it, you know, episode by episode, week by week. Do you think about that? Do you think about it, Kayla? Well, I I do consider how people watch the show because viewership, the viewership numbers impact um, our chances of a third season. So it's something I'm constantly think, thinking about and checking online to make sure we're okay. We're still good. We're still we're still going up. We're still going up. We're still going up. So yes, I do think think about that. But Hulu helps a lot, and our show is also well. The first season is still on um, available for purchase on Amazon now, so that's good. And we have it running in Australia, so that's more viewership. So it's something I'm always considering of how people are watching our show, as long as they do it legally. As long as they do it legally. Yeah, I mean, I never really, you never really know what experience someone's gonna have with the show, and like, like, please like me. I met this girl once, and she like watched it when she was in late. But you know, and you always hear you always have people come up to you and tell you stories about like it being that show that they watched during like a breakup or like when they're like a, like a new couple and like oh me and my boyfriend when we started dating we like watched this show together and that's so sweet. So you like you never really know how the show's gonna like land on someone's desk or like what storyline to them is gonna seem the biggest. But what was kind of interesting about this year is you did kind of know how people were gonna watch this show because we're in this pandemic and you knew that everyone was gonna be left at home. I did sort of have a sense of like the emotional state of most of our audience as we like delivered this show to them and like could consider like what kind of experience they wanted them to have in a more universal way than usually you can. Because usually you just have no idea. And so what does the future hold for you both? Because so Josh, normally you'd be in LA where Kyla is, you're in Melbourne, Australia at the moment. How is that impacting your work? And and yeah, what is work at the moment? I mean, I'm going on holiday. I just went on two weeks holiday. I went on two, two weeks RV vacation with my mom. I just finished season two on Friday and my last sound mix. So I'm done. That's like ready to go to air. And I think next week maybe I'm going to like rent a houseboat. <laughs> And then, um, I don't really know as, as about as much forward planning as I've done. I mean, at the moment, like, the show's going to add, I'm doing publicity, and we, I'll, like, enjoy that it goes to after, like, the next few weeks. And then, I don't know, I'll make, I'll make some plan. And Gayla, I think, is a whole bunch of auditions, huh? What's next? It's kind of harder because, you know, like, a month after the first season aired, the pandemic hit. So all auditions callbacks, everything stopped. All the sets shut down. So there wasn't really any opportunities then. So now that things are just like starting to pick up and everything's reopening, productions, auditions have been rushing in, which I was, I missed auditioning so much, but I kept myself busy with doing Zoom classes 
uh, for both like acting and voiceover and then um, bringing on Echo Lake Entertainment um, as my management team. So more for team Kayla. So right now it's just a patient waiting games, waiting to see what happens in between press and auditions. That's um, all the time we have, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I'd just like to say thanks very much to you, Josh. Thanks very much, Kyla, for joining me. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll all get the chance to see each other maybe in person one of these days soon. Josh Thomas and Kayla Cromer speaking with Nico Franks as part of C21's Content LA On Demand. Video versions of all the sessions are available on c21media.net right now if you're a pro subscriber, but that's all for our coverage from this year's event. There'll be more from the podcast next week, however, in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. <laughs>